Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's not a whole lot that Donald Trump and Joe Biden agree on, but there's a belief they do appear to share that America is number one. Why? Well, they say we've got the best, most capable workers, the smartest people, the greatest economic engine. Now, that may be true. It may not be true. But folks running for office tend to be pretty passionate about telling us, oh, it is. We should be able to stay number one indefinitely. And I think that's what Americans want. It's, it's what our politicians say they want. It's, uh, and it's, some, it's a goal we should embrace. Matthew Iglesias is the co-founder of the website Vox. And he says there's pretty much just one way to stay number one. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, a super fast detour into the Industrial Revolution. This is super fast. It's going to be important. You know, England has the first industrial revolution in the world. And when you look at the statistics historically, it's also the slowest industrial revolution in the world. And it's because every single thing they did had to be invented from scratch for the first time and then trial and error about how to work it out. So England industrializes first, but they're kind of bumping along. And Iglesias says, we, the U.S., we get to benefit from the work that they do. We skip over a lot of the mistakes that they make. And that benefit of not going first, well, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. You know, a lot of countries stay stuck in poverty, but when they do industrialize, whether that's Southern Europe in the 1940s and 50s, or Japan in the 60s and 70s, Korea in the 70s and 80s, or China today, each new industrializer goes faster than the ones who came before it because they have more models that they can imitate. They have more technology that they can import. They can just bring skilled workers abroad and say, hey, like, show us how you build a car factory. Right? They don't need to come up with it from scratch. And it means that countries that are on that catch-up trajectory, which China still is, they just can inherently grow faster than a country like the United States, which is at the frontier. China's economy has been growing quickly. And while different experts have different projections, it looks like their economy may overtake ours in the next several years. And with economic power comes all sorts of other power in politics and foreign affairs and media, which worries Iglesias a lot. So he says, if we truly want to be number one, there's a single obvious path. His new book is called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. At 1 billion Americans, we will have the population density that France has today. We'll have about half the density of Germany. So we're not talking about an absurd number of people, right? Now, it's a, it's a large number. Um, it is meant to be striking. Uh, I could have said, I could have titled my book 1.4% annual population growth, but I don't, I don't think people would have bought that book. You know, I, 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 I want to make it interesting. Uh, but the point is the surprising reality is that 1 billion is very realistic. It is just not that many people. It's not that much growth, right? If you think about a time span of a couple generations. Now, it may not be that much growth, but it's some. America currently has about 330 million people. So we're talking about tripling the number of Americans. Obviously, there are two ways of making that happen. You can bring in more immigrants or you can have more kids. Iglesia says yes and yes. We'll get to the having more kids piece of things. But first, if you open the door and you let a lot more people into the country, or even if you just let a few more people into the country, 
Doesn't that kind of put the squeeze on American jobs? Well, it's an argument you hear, but what if it gets the reality backwards? Think about a city like Austin or a city like Nashville uh, that a lot of people have been moving to versus you think about a place like, uh, I don't know, Detroit or Cleveland uh, that people have been leaving, right? There's more jobs in the growing city because new people are new customers, right? You need new buildings to house them. You need more staff at your stores. You open up more stuff. Uh, So growth begets growth in that sense in a modern-day service economy. And that's because the vast majority of us work providing services for other people. That's on the micro scale. On the macro scale, immigrants have founded or co-founded companies from eBay to Nordstrom to Tesla to Warby Parker, which means the Americans employed by those companies pretty much had their jobs conjured up out of thin air. Look, there is no doubt that immigrants have been jet fuel for American innovation historically. I mean, you look at our biggest companies. I think I think the uh, the statistic is that half of high growth startups have at least one immigrant founder. And some of that is just because like they're smart people. And you know, right, if you are ambitious, you know that America is one of the best places to be an ambitious person. And the fact that other people want to come here continues to, to make that the case. And if we We opened ourselves up even more to foreign-born scientists and technical experts. We could sort of further grow our lead on innovation. Matt Iglesias argues that even if you don't work for a Tesla or a Warby Parker, they create wealth that supports lots of other folks, from realtors to restaurateurs to contractors to interior decorators. Keeping immigrants out, he says, means missing out on opportunity and missing out on cash. And that cash isn't the only cash we're losing. We have the privilege that people would like to come here, right? A lot of other countries, you know, they would have to go begging to get innovators and entrepreneurs wanting to move there. Uh, Whereas the United States, like everybody knows this is a great place to take your ideas. It's a great place to apply your skills. But we invest incredible efforts in keeping people out. And we should say yes. So... How do we start to say yes? Well, Iglesias says, if we want to get to a billion people by the end of the century, letting in more immigrants will actually allow us to have more kids by increasing the number of people who pay taxes. That lets us do more to provide materially for families to say, We need to have guaranteed paid parental leave in the United States. We need to give some cash to parents of young kids to help meet the extra expenses. We need to talk about starting school for three-year-olds rather than for five-year-olds. We need to make some provisions for, like, what are people supposed to be doing during the summertime? Right now, we're, like, scrambling, stitching together camps and hoping grandma can help out. Uh, But we need to take this stuff seriously. Like, it's a long time since everyone has had, you know, a housewife at home to sort of pick up the the pieces, we count on the government to provide, you know, a safe, enriching environments for our mm-hmm. children. But mm-hmm. then we leave these huge spots. And then we wonder, like, why are millennials saying, why? Well, I, I don't know if I can do this. It's because we're not providing what we know children need. Well, and you also have situations where even, I mean, 
in in non-coronavirus world where kids are actually going to school, a lot of them get out at 2.20 in the afternoon. You know, so and and I don't know that many parents who are free, like done with their jobs and are ready to pick up the kid at 2.20. So as you say, just like with summer, we're asking people to stitch a lot together. Right. I mean, so much of it is built around outdated assumptions, right? If you think about our school system as what's the minimum that we need to do so that kids learn how to read and write and how to do math, the public schools are very adequate to that task with the assumption that mom is just kind of sitting around ready to pick the kids up at three, uh, ready to take care of them, you know, if there's a random three-day weekend or a PTO thing, summer times, all that kind of stuff. In the modern world, I mean, of course, the educational function of schools is incredibly important. But it's also the primary child care provision that we have in the United States. And so, you know, at my son's school, they have an aftercare program because parents, you know, they, they need their kids to be doing something in the afternoon. Right. And, you know, the school tries to provide uh, sort of scholarship money so low-income families can get in for free, but more affluent families, you know, have to pay up. And that's fine on one level. I mean, I I can afford it. Most of the families who do it can afford it. Uh, But it means that we are placing the cost burden on ordinary middle-class Americans. We could have done that for school, like all school. It could be, well, it's free for the poor, uh, but if you have some money, you got to pay tuition. Mm -hmm. What would happen then is that middle-class people would find that the expense of having even one child is absolutely crushing. Right. Fortunately, we we don't do that, but we need to think about that universal provision for more stuff. Uh, Some Democrats like to talk about free college, you know, which is nice. But I think, honestly, the least important part of this compared to preschool, compared to summer activities, compared to aftercare, uh, we should be saying, look, like this is not everybody has to have kids, but society needs us to have kids. And so the parents who are doing the work are going to get some help. The only thing I would say about that is it it is certainly true. We have seen the American birth rate declining. I think we're now at about 1.7 births per woman, which is about half of what it was in 1960. So that, that is a precipitous fall, except that in countries where they do have a good safety net. Uh, you know, uh, I think about places like France and many countries in Europe where there's a, a lot more pre-K programs that are free, maybe after-school programs that are free and a lot more supportive of parents. They don't have very high birth rates. So it, it's not that they don't support parents. They do. But that didn't make everybody go out and say, all right, then I'm having four kids. Great. Well, so what happens is that the primary determinant of family size is religious observance, right? So in the United States, more religious people have larger families. In Europe, more religious people have larger families. The United States is a more religious country than Europe, so we have a somewhat higher birth rate. Uh, But if you look internally to Europe, right, the highest levels of childbearing are in France and they're in the Nordic countries. And those are the places that have the most generous social supports for families. Countries like Spain and Italy that are stingier, they have very, 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 very few children. So, you know, policy analysts uh, 
people who who know more math than I do, um, econometricians, they look at this stuff and they try to calculate. Um, there's some uncertainty, but they say that something like the American Families Act, which is a law, um, a proposal from Senate Democrats, uh, that that would generate about 0.3 extra sort of children per woman, um, they think. You know, it's, it's a mathematical estimate. There's some uncertainty around it. But the point is that policy has an impact at the margin. I would also say to Americans, you know, sometimes we, we look to Europe with jealousy because they have this more generous uh, welfare state. We do also have some important advantages for family life. Our houses are a lot bigger than European houses. Our uh, appliances are better. Like this, <laughs> no, but like it, 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 it drove me crazy. I went to uh, Ireland with with my son, and we we rented a small apartment. We were having a lot of fun there, but they they don't have. Um, vented clothing dryers there so like everything you know stays soggy and you got to hang it out on lines but it's ireland so like there's no sun there either <laughs> nothing ever, and you know if if you have kids any listeners here it's it's like the dumbest part of parenting but there is so much um there's so much joy in parenting and there's so much you know the, like difficult moments with the kids but there's also a lot of just like weird support tasks around keeping things clean um and the united states really does have some some advantages there. But I, I do think the size of the houses is an important thing. Um, one of the things you talk about in your book, um, is sort of one of the reasons to increase the U.S.'s population, uh, you say, is really to compete with a place like China. Um, why does China, China seems to factor very large in your thinking. Uh, why? Why are you concerned about it? I mean, I think China should factor large in our thinking. I mean, we've all been talking about the rise of China for years and years and years, but sort of not paying attention to it. But a few different things have come together recently uh, that should make people alarmed. One is, in purchasing power terms, the Chinese economy has gotten bigger than ours. Um, and this has some specific consequences. Some people quibble with the statistics, but uh, Hollywood movie studios make more money selling tickets in China than they make selling tickets in the United States. And, huh. th and this means that Chinese censors, uh, Pan America, the, the writers group, did a great report on this. Chinese censors now dictate to Hollywood the content of their movies globally, right? Because as the Chinese market has gotten more and more important, they've gotten right. more and more aggressive. So, hmm. you know, an example, it's, it's petty, but it's disturbing, is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a minor character called the Ancient One. Uh, she's played okay. she's played by Tilda Swinton in the movies, but in okay. comic books, this is a Tibetan monk, right? Not a okay. not, not a white lady, and it's not just like one of these things where Hollywood, you know, race bends. China won't let you put Tibetan characters in movies, right? Hmm. Um, they won't let Brad Pitt come out with movies in China because they're mad at him about a movie from about Tibet from twenty years ago, and this hmm. is you know. Walt Disney Company, they give in to this kind of thing because they need that money. And so you can say, well, it's a movie. It's not important. But if we go one more year, 10 more years, 20 more years, and the Chinese market keeps getting bigger and bigger, what happens when they say to Disney, hey, we don't want ABC News covering Tibet anymore, right? Is Disney going to make a different call then than they made about Marvel? I'm not sure that they will. When they say the same thing to uh, Universal about NBC's news coverage, will it be a different decision? You know, I mean, these are companies, right? Companies try to make money. 
if you make money by making China happy, you've got to do what they say. Uh, in the NBA, right, we had uh, Daryl Morey, general manager of the Houston Rockets. He did a tweet sort of in solidarity with the protesters in Hong Kong. And so they yanked all NBA games off television in China. And all kinds of NBA stars came out to condemn, not to condemn China, to condemn Morey for standing with uh, with Hong Kong because they, they didn't want to lose that revenue. And, you know, you can criticize them as individuals uh, for giving into this, and, and you should, but if the China market becomes the most important market in the world, then business people from America and from all over the world will conform themselves to Chinese standards. And I don't think we want to live in that world, right? Nobody thinks about this in the United States, but that's because we became the world's largest economy over a hundred years ago. There is nobody alive today who remembers what it was like to not be number one. And our politicians, you mentioned this at, at, at the top, Mm. None of them are saying, oh, hey, it's going to be fine if China's number one. We'll be number two. We'll be <laughs> right. a really nice number, number three two. is fine. Like, no problem. Yeah. So part of my point here is, like, we should take that seriously. If we want to be number one, we got to look at the numbers and talk about doing something to make sure that we actually stay number one. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Matt Iglesias. He's the author of One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Let's take a quick break right here. When we come back, the partisan split on immigration and also how our day-to-day lives would be different if there were just a lot more people in the U.S. You can grab this whole conversation on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From GBH Radio and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the spring and summer of 1980, Jimmy Carter started to realize he had a serious political problem on his hands. Good evening. Politicians from several states tonight are sharply criticizing President Carter's handling of the Cuban refugee problem. The governor of the problem was called the Muriel Boat Lift which was when uh, Cuba, to sort of try to um, stick it to the United States, just like let tons and tons of disaffected people, some people criminals out of their jails, they just let them kind of sail to Miami. That's author Matthew Iglesias, who argues the boat lift didn't really stick it to the U.S., at least not in the long run. Between midnight and noon today, 23 boats filled with over 800 Cubans reached Key West, Florida. U.S. Marines are now on duty at Key West to keep order among the restless refugees waiting resettlement in the United States. The Mario boat lift ultimately brought more than 100,000 Cubans to Florida in 1980. So many people were arriving each day. They were housed on fairgrounds, in sports stadiums, and in a section that was carved out under the I-95 highway. It had the intended effect of creating big political problems for Jimmy Carter and kind of hassling people and and making Americans upset. But when you look in a brass tax sense, uh, it was economically beneficial, basically like totally uncontrolled migration. Uh, So people didn't like it politically, though, which is fine. Um, So it means that we are really having a political conversation, not about what kinds of immigrants are beneficial, because they're all beneficial, but about what kinds of immigrants we can get people to support. 
Iglesias is a co-founder of the website Vox, and he's the author of the book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. He says, we're losing ground economically, particularly to larger countries like China and India. And if we're going to remain number one in the world, there's really only one way to make that happen. Grow. Have more kids, have more immigrants, both high skill and low skill. Iglesias wants us to go from our current level of 330-ish million people to about a billion folks by 2100, which is to say we'd be tripling our population. The only thing is we're kind of going in the opposite direction. So President Trump, I think, he says some things about immigration that I think are reasonable. Um, He says he loves legal immigration. He says he just wants to make sure we're getting the best people. But you look at what he does, right? And so he has cut down on student visas. He's made it harder for the spouses of high-tech workers Mm. to get work permits. He has made it harder for refugees to settle here legally. He's made it harder for family members to come here legally. He has basically taken every dial he can find and he's turned it down. And that is the the Trump administration's attitude. They are really paranoid about foreigners coming here. So they look for reasons to say no. Maybe the sending country isn't organized enough. Maybe there's a risk you might get Medicaid benefits. You know, they're just, they are fearful of foreigners. But I think the actual experience of immigration has been much more optimistic than that. I mean, it is true. Millions of people have moved here from abroad and more than zero of them have been criminals. But on the verge, on the, on the large scale, they commit crimes at lower rates than native-born Americans, they contribute to the tax base, they drive immigration forward, and we should be looking for bigger categories of people to say yes to. I, I mentioned before, you, you alluded to it, that there's a real partisan split, obviously, in this country on the issue of immigration. Um, in 2019, Pew found that uh, about 82% of Democrats want to come up with a way for people who are here without papers to stay legally. Uh, When you look at Republicans, that number is 48%. 82%, 48%. That's very, very far apart. That's a very partisan issue. Um, What in your mind is going on there? And can you move the needle? Well, look, I mean, 82 versus 48, that's a big divide. Uh, But add that up, right? Like, that's a strong consensus across the country. Like, Democrats are united that we should do this. Republicans are divided. Um, And the answer is, like, we should do it, right? Like, there's so there's about 11 million people here without papers who've been here for years. We should say, look, if you can demonstrate that you know, you don't have a criminal record, if you can pay your back taxes, if you could pay some kind of, there should be some kind of penalty fee, you know, it's a point of principle, you know, and then you can get on a track to regularizing your status, to having a work permit, to getting on path to citizenship, you know, enroll in English classes, whatever it is we we want to make people do. Um, And then we can focus on trying to locate and deport people who, you know, are cheating, 
on an ongoing basis. People who are involved in gangs, people who, who are doing the things, right? When President Trump talks about illegal immigrants, he focuses on the fact that some undocumented people are doing bad and dangerous things. And that's, of course, true, right? It's a population of 11 million. So out of 11 million people, some of them are creating real problems. But Trump's view is we should focus on those problems and then blame the entire population for them. I think most people's view is that's wrong. Let's let people come forward, come out of the shadows, pay their taxes, regularize their status, and then we can isolate and actually apprehend the people who are causing the problems. It's a tragedy that we had these bills, big bipartisan bills, in 2007 and 2013 that could have addressed this problem. They had bipartisan support in the Senate in 2013. It passed with like 70 votes. And it had bipartisan majority in the House behind the bill. But House Republicans wouldn't let it come to the floor for a vote. And they thought that if they let it pass, well, they were going to the establishment was going to be rocked by outsiders. Uh, so they killed it, and then Donald Trump beat them all anyway. So they accomplished nothing. Millions of people suffer as a result. It's, it's, it makes me sad. It makes me angry, frankly. How do you deal with concerns that, you know, even amongst, let's say, liberals who are like, yeah, I believe in more immigration. How do you deal with concerns that, oh, gosh, I mean, what's traffic going to be like if we triple the population? What where are we going to put people? I mean, traffic's already terrible. (laughs) Yeah, traffic, you know, so. I have two different answers to this. If you want to, you know, look at detail, I have a whole chapter in the book about transportation policy and how to address these kind of traffic problems. I love transportation. I'm a huge transportation policy nerd. On some level, the whole book is just a pretext to uh, write about road funding and and bus routes. That being said, (laughs) think about traffic jam, right? Um, I don't know. At a certain point, Franklin Roosevelt says, we're going to be the arsenal of democracy. We're going to do the war production that can keep the British Empire in this fight. And eventually we we get in the war ourselves. So you could sit back there in, you know, 1940 and say, wow, that's going to be a lot of extra trucks on the highway. You know, I I don't think I want to deal with that, right? You could say, okay, JFK says, well, we're going to put a man on the moon. And then somebody else says, wow. I mean, where are people going to park at Cape Canaveral? And they actually had a problem with the parking. I mean, you know, these things. <laughs> so you, you, if you wanted to go yeah. to the Apollo 11 launch, you had to take a shuttle bus from someplace else. Oh, I see. I mean, you know, but is that what was important about that story? Like, I don't, I don't think it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, are we really going to say that a nation, you know, people got on covered wagons and they went across the Rocky Mountains um, and they <laughs> and they built the West Coast. But now it's like, well, we can't, we can't repair our bridges. We're just going to yeah, give but, up on life. I mean, that's... okay, but but on a serious uh, level of the this infrastructure question, yeah. you, you talk about people going over the Rocky Mountains. There are some serious issues in the West right now about the question of, for example, water insecurity and where that's going to sit over the next, you know, generation or two. Um, you know, I don't know how you add three million more people to Los Angeles. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. there so, are some serious issues. Yeah. Well, so the United States actually has tons of water. We are provided on a per capita basis with more than three times as much water as as the vast majority of other developed countries out there. When you peer into most of these things, what you see is a management problem. So on water, for example, we choose to allocate water 
very, very cheaply to agricultural and industrial uses. And so naturally, those agricultural and industrial users are very wasteful with it. And they wind up leaving relatively little water left for just like people want to drink water, right? Uh, so we, we need to manage our water supply. If we have no population growth, like we should manage our water supply better. If we manage it correctly, we can easily accommodate more people. Hmm. Um. Obviously, if we did triple our population, if we got to a billion, uh, we wouldn't be the first country that's gotten there. But if you look at India and China, which are both sitting over a billion now, they have a lot more people, but they also have a much lower standard of living. Do you feel like if we had a lot more people, we too would have a lower standard of living? There would be more environmental degradation, all of that. No, these are very dense countries. I mean, we're not talking about the United States getting anywhere close to the population density of China. Um, they have about four times our population in a much smaller land area. Uh, mm, so, okay. so, so we can triple, you know, we're fine. At a billion, we would have the population density of France. We would have half the population density of Germany. So... I don't know, you know, maybe people go to France and they think, wow, this country is horrifically overcrowded. It doesn't seem that way to me. It, it seems like a nice, a nice country. Uh, Paris is a nice city. They got some nice vineyards. Uh, there's small towns happening there. There's good stuff. Um, some people say to me, well, you know, America has mountains because uh, France, it's true, is not that mountainous. Uh, Switzerland is more than three times as dense as the United States. And wow, they've got okay. they've got a lot of mountains there. Uh, I can yes, tell you. Yes, um, that's true. <laughs> cows and things coming around. The United States is just a pretty empty kind of country. And some parts of the country suffer from a lack of people, right? So there are parts of America where the infrastructure is overtaxed. There are also places like Detroit area, right? Southeastern Michigan, where the tax base has eroded to the point where it's challenging to just sort of keep the potholes filled in the roads. But then that discourages people from living there because, you know, nobody likes uh, low quality roads. And that further hurts the tax base. Or you go mm, places like... Mm, mm. Over the summer, I was in rural Maine, and I was thinking, well, one upside of this pandemic is, you know, we're all working remotely anyway, so I can just, like, be on the coast, uh, enjoy the nice weather. It's beautiful up there, right? And maybe in a, a Zoom future, like, everybody will want to go uh, to, to rural Maine, and that would be great. But the broadband internet there is terrible. It's much more expensive than what I pay for here in D.C., and it's much, mm. much, much slower. And the reason it's so bad is that there's not very many people there, right? Like, it's expensive to build fiber optic cables. And if there's no customers, well, right. you're not going right. to do it. But then if right. people don't want to live there because they can't use modern technology, things are happening now. A lot of towns are closing their elementary schools and merging with the town next door. But that makes it an even less desirable place to live, right? And so like small town America, which ought to be, uh, the comparative advantage of small towns really ought to be like raising families, having children. Uh, but instead, we are seeing working age population shrink in a majority of rural counties as people don't have uh, the sort of best modern internet stuff. The education systems are withering away a little bit because there aren't enough children there. And, you know, we don't need to turn the countryside into like Hong Kong 
Chicago or something like that. But, you know, people <laughs> people who want to live in small towns, I think, still want to live in thriving small towns, you know, where, like, the library is open five days a week, where there's an elementary school, uh, where they can pay a police officer, not in places where there's only retirees and people kind of looking around and, you know, all the stores have closed and there's a Walmart 30 miles away. That's, like, that's sad. And that's, that's not what people are, are looking for out of rural life. But we are depopulating in huge swaths of the country. Let me ask you finally about making that case for what you advocate. Um, This is a line from your book. Uh, You say, from Barack Obama's rhetoric about the need to win the future to Donald Trump's emphasis on tough trade negotiations, politicians from both parties offer theories about how to avoid American decline that are plainly inadequate to the task. So how do you convince people if the if the answer is open the doors and let people in, you know, strengthen the tax base, all of that um, and and have more children, too? How do you convince people uh, that what we've been doing to get America to be number one, you know, for the next generation is inadequate? I mean, it's just obviously not adequate, right? People have been hearing about how America is number one for so long that they don't even think critically about it anymore. Uh, But the fact is, is that we are losing our lead and we need to do something about it, not just kind of talk about it, right? Uh, There's no way that we are going to grow as rapidly on a per capita basis as China is, because they are um, just a poorer country, and they can sort of copycat things, and and they're growing 6-7% a year, we do 2-3%, but we can add people, right? And I just, I do not see anybody on the political radar saying, well, let's embrace second-class status, but I also don't see them saying like, okay, this is like, this is what I'm going to do. This is my plan to maintain a lead. So President Trump is like, um, he threatened to ban TikTok. And then, you know, Oracle is going to buy 20% of it. But like, getting tough on their video meme apps, that's like, <laughs> you know, maybe it's the you right never thing to know. do. It's, it's so petty, you know, it's so small minded. Uh, you got to get you got to get I think bigger. That's that's my subtitle. Matthew Iglesias is a co-founder of the website Vox. He's the author of the book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. And on our website, we've got more about several of the topics that Matt has touched on, including the Mariel Boat Lift, which brought Cubans to America in 1980. We've also got a conversation for you there that I had over the summer with economist Melissa Carney. She co-authored a striking report for Brookings, and it predicts the economic fallout of COVID means that something like half a million American children will not be born next year because economic downturns tend to lead to people having fewer children. And that's roughly one in seven Americans who would have been born in 2021. They won't be. That's all at innovationhub.org.